Hello and welcome to another episode of Fully Scored. I'm your host, Matthew Frost. What have we got lined up for you today, you may be asking. Well, hold your horses, I'm about to tell you. First of all, we have an interview with George Whittingham, a long-time member of the International Staff Band and a Salvation Army officer. Then we ventured to the lighter side of Salvation Army music as we analysed the flugelhorn solo, So Glad, by William Himes. To help us navigate the piece and the idiom, we're joined by Australian Salvationist composer Sam Creamer. And, as usual, we'll have time for our unique segments, Band Manager, Arid Island Album, and a surprise edition of Band Mastermind. More on that later. But first, we join George in his South London home. Well, George, thank you ever so much for joining us on Fully School today. It's a real privilege to speak to you. I'm so happy to relax and talk to you, which is, uh, I hope I've got an answer to most of your questions anyway. I'll do my best. Excellent. I'll do my best. Excellent. I'm glad to hear you're relaxed as well. That's always oh, a good start. Always relaxed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. So my first question uh, to you is, going back a little bit, how did you first come to be in the Salvation Army? Oh, that's easy to answer. I'm five generations. My great grandmother, not my grandmother, my great-grandma was one of the first Salvationists in the Sheffield area of a corps called Atterclip. My granddad actually heard the open airs again, we come into the open airs ministry and he heard this uh, the name of Jesus and he followed the band to the hall again and uh, soundly converted. And so, the service have been part of my life. My little village call was called Hemsworth in South Yorkshire. My father was a coal miner, and times were tough in the 1930s. When I got to 14, 15, I used to cycle to a call called Goldthorpe because they coal miners and they had a good band there during the war. And, and uh, I thought, oh, I'd like to just branch out. And I saw an advert lo- locally from Carlton Main, Prickly Collie Band, for Horn, uh, Horn uh, Vacancy. So I think that's my mum and dad, so I applied for it. And to my amazement, though, I was asked to go for an audition. Now, Carlton Main, Collie, the Collie, just outside Collie is Carlton Main. Still, the band room is still there. Can't main, main still use that same band room there, and uh, I went. I went. I had to be there for six o'clock. Got there for six o'clock. Got went in the band room. Uh, it's just, uh, just the band set out coal fire in there. Got coal and get as much coal as I want from there. Handy. And a man called Badrick, Albert Badrick, was the musical director. And he was sat on the high school there smoking his pipe. Sit down, lad, he said, and, uh, and, and then in those days, I, I, I'm pretty sure people didn't have their own mouthpieces in those days. The mouthpiece came with the instrument, and I can't, I, in those days, I can't remember anybody having, uh, um, it was only later when Dennis Week came in with the mouthpiece, but, uh, and so it was the mouthpiece. So I picked it up and there was some music there, and he said, play that. And, uh, I played it, and then he, then gradually was pulling it to faster. So 
anyway, at the end of the audition, they said, would you like to stay Ladito? They call me Laddie. Would you have to say Ladito's band rehearsal this evening? Oh, I said, yes, please. So I sat and played in the first, I think it was the first one. And the fellas came in and greeted me. And uh, I felt right though. And someone said, well, there's a place there for you if I want it. How do, how do I tell mum and dad? They're <laughs> brought up in the army, so I, so I said, uh, "Oh, I get over that." Dad, dad understood. He understood. He understood. And I had, so I had, I was three, three and a half, four years. And I think, looking back now, I think the Lord, well, maybe silly to say this, I think the Lord brought me into that environment. So like I, you know, to get the professionalism of Doc Branson. But I wasn't happy on the horn. I wasn't happy on it. A man called Harry Mortimer was our professional conductor. I said to Mr. Brown, can I have a go at, uh, on an EPAP bass? He said, yeah, we, yeah. So I ended up on playing the EPAP bass, which I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed it because it was in my, in my range and I could play everything, the reason most of everything. I'm talking about the more years now, 1939 to 45 the war years, and, uh, but that area were coal fields and all the men were exempt from military service because coal was, was the number one commodity for, for ammunition and everything. So the managing director of Cartman Picklicoli was a called Mr. Tag, T-A-G-G. He was the top man, he was the director, owner, owner but he was a blast bound fanatic. Right. So when we were coming up to the September business, and, and, uh, which was at Bellevue, the, the, regional, the regional areas were under the Daily Herald, a paper called the Daily Herald. And they, they had the regionals like they do now with the, with the championships in October. So when it came to the, these big regions, we would Six all the men in the we all worked at Cartmain. You had to work at Cartmain. We worked there. We 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 uh, clocked in, but instead of going down the mines shaft, because we all worked down in, we all went below. Instead of going down mountain, we we, we went to the battle. So we started there at seven o'clock in the morning, rehearsing bases. Then we'd have a break about ten and that. And with the blessing of the managing director and defeated our payroll. It's great to hear that story. So was that every single day? You were rehearsing then pretty much all day? But up to the contest, about two, maybe two or three weeks before the contest. No, the last week we'd rehearse every day. And, and other times of the years when you weren't preparing for that contest, would you have to work in the mines yeah, themselves? Yeah, yeah. What was that like? Terrible. Terrible. Oh, indescribable. Foul air. Supposed to be able no toilet facilities. Yeah. I hated it. I hated being going now. Hated it. So perhaps now we could talk about how you came back to be playing with Salvation Army. Yes, back yes, part yes. Of Salvation Army. Again. Yes. I, I, in those days, I'm thinking about the war days around the war days. All the, all the championship battles were were fully booked for the summer season, for in in big parks and named parks. Throughout the throughout Britain, our, our calendar come May was full, right up to 
end of August. So uh, three till five was a program, seven until nine. And then they used to, as soon as it was nine o'clock, on the dot, national anthem, back up as quick as they could, because they could, they, Pubs closed at ten o'clock, <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and they had to yeah, they had to get that painting before ten o'clock. <laughs> there was a place like Not Nottingham. The park was in the in the city really where, where we were playing. And after five o'clock, I knew at six o'clock there'd be an open air somewhere. And at six o'clock, I I just took sandwiches with me, and I, and it was in Nottingham Square. Mm. And, and I uh, uh, and I got and I, I, I was in my uniform because and caps so I I thought I, I don't want to go and be recognised so I just stood at the corner listening to this opener and uh, it was a strange feeling I, I felt and George is not right that was the first little prick from the Holy Spirit talking to me. The second one was a Saturday morning, and Saturday morning was the time when mum and dad had a little brother, Horace, and a sister. So fish and chips for Saturday morning. And that had gone a while as radio was becoming popular. And it switched on the radio, and a voice said, today bandstand comes to you from the London Studio was played by the International Staff Band of the Salvation Army, conducted by Colonel Fuller, George Fuller. And part of the program was the, it was the uh, selection of the King of Kings. And I think, there were, I think it was a live broadcast. And uh, I heard the melody, you know, to uh, Our Faith Hope to Heal a Broken Heart, okay. Free the Captive, always Jane. And there and then, that's when the Holy Spirit spoke to me. Definitely, I'm definite about that. I knew it, I knew it. I, I went to councils and heard Edgar Green said, just he recited a verse from, uh, from one of the Holy Spirit, he said, just as I am young, strong and free, to be the best that I can be, for truth and righteousness in thee, Lord of my life, I come out. I knew then, and I was, I was yeah, and I was, uh, I married then. I married I married Grace. Grace had been an officer, and she come out of the work to marry me. And so when I told her, she was over the moon, of course. Then I went. So that's how I got went into the salvation army. Fantastic. And then, so went into officership or full-time ministry for those went of into the training college. So what were those years like at the training college? I went into training, and on the on the second day on the notice board, uh, the band. I think there were seventy-four single lads, most of them coming into officership from from bands and soldier brigades. That's where they recruit. I mean, now they haven't got the bands and songs to recruit from, for obvious The list went up, and they said, Cadet George Whittingham, G Trombone. And I said, what's this? G Trombone? The bandmaster was Albert Drury, not, not at Citadel, by the way. Mm -hmm. I said, go 
captain. Look at that. It's a, it's a cadet. There are 17 applications for euphonium players. <laughs> and we looked at your credentials and we see that you were a, a songstress. So you would know the bass. And I thought, well, that is a, is a likely candidate for it. He said, Look, the instrument is in the band room. He said, You've got until next Thursday to learn how to play. You'll be on the march to, down to the Camberwell Holders meeting, expecting to play that bass drum bone. And so I, I thought, I, I, I don't know how to read a bit. What, how, do, how do I read it? How do I read the music? Bass clap. Oh, I know. I'll transpose a third down and I'll add a, I'll add a flat or I'll add a sharp or whatever it is. And that's how I started on bass drum bone. So when you came out of the training college, did you also go into the staff band at the same time, or did you have some years out at calls before that happened? I, I guess we, we were appointed to Peel in the Isle of Man. Right. And wow. the quarters, the quarter, if you can call them that, was two up and two down, cold water, no hot water, mice wow. <laughs> in the attic, and, uh, and uh, but the car. Uh, was made up of youngsters. Uh, there was a band of about 17 and 18, and for, for, for first year officer to have a band in his first year. Billy Quirk was, a, was the man who was looking after them, and what he had done, after each note, he put the fingering down. He'd gone through all the all the tune book, what the band were playing, and he'd put all the fingers, one and two, and one open, one and two, and that's how they were playing. They, did, they couldn't read a note to music, and they were playing like that. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. It sounded so good. So I said, look, you've got to build, you've got to teach the music, come on, I'll help you. So we started teaching the music. We were there 12 months. But by that time, our son was showing signs of his illness wasn't improving. It wasn't improving. And we know uh, specialists were saying, there's little we can do, John. So there's a very good children's hospital in Liverpool called Alder Hay. Alder Hay, still used. We'll move it to Alder Hay Hospital. We'll move it into Liverpool, so we've got experts on them. Christmas time, week before Christmas when we lost them. And, uh, and Grace was pregnant again. And f unfortunately, it's not, it wasn't in registry, but the second one, she gave birth to Michael, that second boy. And within months we'd lost him as well. And so now I'm going to take you from that situation mm. down to London situation to the canteen at IHQ. And the conversation is taking place between Bernard Adams and Albert Turley. And Bernard is pouring out his, all his problems with the staff band because next year, next March, the staff band is going to undertake a five-week tour of North America or, and, and Alan York from Portsmouth Citadel, based on Pontclair, is pulled out. He says, do you, know, do you know anybody, Albert? He says, well, for what it's worth, what it's worth, Bernard, when I was a bamboo of the cadets band, there was a boy who made a, a great impression on me. I think, with experience, he, I think he could do the job. But he's only, he's only second lieutenant. He don't have second lieutenants, that's very on time school. Bernard then, he, he must have made inquiries and, and, and 
persuaded the chief, I, I'm only surmising now, to, to, to take us out of that situation in Liverpool where we lost our children into down to London because the next thing we were on convalescent grace and I just tried to get over it and we're in Scarborough when, when a telegram arrived to say return back to headquarters and report to the divisional commander. Which I did do to be told, he said, tomorrow you will be receiving two letters. One, the first letter is that you are appointed to international headquarters to the cashier's department. And sure enough, next morning, two letters arrived. From, one is to notify you that you are appointed as a member of the international staff band, as from this day. Report to Major Will Howard, band secretary. And so for the first practice, was in a little band room in the remaining part of HQ in Pequimby that hadn't been bombed. The rest of us was just wasteland. It wasn't heavy bombers, heavy bombs, it was fire incendies that caused all that area to be burning furiously. But in, in the left-hand corner, there was still, it wasn't touched, the, it, the fire ended there and this was remained. And in it was the finance and the property and the band room of the staff band and right in the lower. Hardly bigger than this room, just enough for what the band to play. So I, yeah, I, we couldn't have visitors, we couldn't have visitors. They wouldn't have for them. So, uh, and, and then the, the percussion, there was a basement uh, in this corner, uh, and that's where the percussion was there, the drums, well, because it was a drum and a side drum there. And there. And when I opened the door, and I nearly fell down the steps because there was two steps and led down to it. And uh, I bumped into Brian Cooper, and uh, all the bandsmen were staring at me. I could tell them, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. <laughs> And uh, of course, there was Siddle Brisley, Arthur Old, John Cobb. Uh, next to John Cobb was uh, Brian Cooper, who was featured, later featured in piano book solos, and me, myself, and G. Tom Bourne. And I, I knew I could tell they were going to be listening to me. But, uh, but afterwards, I must have done well because they all came up and shook hands with me. I couldn't, I, it was like being in Fairyland. I was shaking hands with Roland Cobb, you know, all these Josh Walford coming and shaking my I couldn't, I, it, 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 I couldn't take it in. It, it seemed like another world to me, which it, I suppose which it was. But they were so kind, they really was. And the lads on the trombone section made me so, so welcome, so welcome. And Bernard Adams, he didn't speak to me. Really? No, no, he didn't speak. The lead introduced me to the band. Right. But the and uh, that's uh, the executive officer. It was called the lead, and then the ex-officer, who was a commissioner, always a commissioner for us now. And it was him that introduced me to the band. But uh, I can't, I can't remember Bernard Adams talking to me for two or three weeks probably, right. before he did. And in those days, it was Monday, Monday lunchtime, Tuesday lunchtime, Wednesday, full two-hour years, or Friday, plus extras because we were doing overseas stuff. Mm -hmm. Lowland Cobb was the one who made me feel very welcome. And I've been 
and from that time to this, I still talk to Lowley. I call him Lowley. I still talk to Lowley on the phone yeah. now. Thank you for yeah. sharing that with us. It's yeah. absolutely fascinating yeah. to hear. At what point did you move from the bass trombone to chamber in the start that? Eight years later, we were going to Holland. By that time, I was the bandmaster up in Holland when he was the songster leader with his. It's true that he had 65 centimeters more in the stone. And uh, he said, George, I've got a problem and uh, I need to strengthen my bass section. He said, uh, will you, will you uh, give it a try for me? And for the tour. And he said, uh, a captain called Lescondon, who was, who was a bass player, and it's expected that he is coming into the man. But unfortunately, there wasn't a good relationship then between Albert Jakeway and Bernard Adams. I think it goes, went back to the Rose Hill days when there was a, when Albert Jakeway formed the Rose Hill band. Now, this was a good band. It was a very good band. Albert Jakeway, he was working in the editorial and he did not like the idea of one of his baseball joining the South Band, especially Les Gorman. Right. And he put up a resistance again. And the chief stepped in and made a decision that he joined. What was it like when Leslie Condon did join you on that bass section? Oh, what was it like? Oh, the, the tricks we used to play on Les. I think in one sense, looking back now, it relieved tension and some of the antics that we came up. It relieved tension because wherever we went, we were, we, were, we were playing the thousand, you know, in our, in our Sunday night. It wasn't a matter of two or three hundred. We were talking with thousands, queuing up two hours to get into the buildings. Wow. You know, and I'm talking about, you know, Sheffield City Hall, Durham City Hall. Yeah, and uh, the visit of a staff band to a court was a big event, a very big event. Les, Pleasant Age, for instance. Mm. He was writing music for that the Friday before the Saturday festival. Crumbs. Yeah, he he got, he come in and 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 uh, he got in his hand slips of paper there. Can you paste these in? And, uh, this is on the Friday before the Saturday, and and, and we paste in the morning and paste in the day and uh, and it was twenty past one before we had a first full run through present age, one run through on the Friday like that. And the next one was going on the stage of the, uh, uh, the Royal Albert Hall, mm. giving that which is recorded now. Mm. Fantastic. Um, unbelievable. I think, I think if, if Les had not died, he would have been another race terminal, I think. But all, all the signs were there. I believe as well, in your time in the ISB, you were appointed as deputy bandmaster. Yes. Yes. What was that like? Was that a surprise when that appointment came? I was band secretary at the time. I was band secretary, but I was I was doing pretty good, well with up and Norwood band. That was a good band, and uh, I established. Uh, and so, uh, yes, it was a bit of a surprise, but I, I was disappointed uh, in that if Ray and I don't think I've never. I've never spoken out about this or to anyone before. But as deputy bandmaster, 
I would occasionally, occasionally conduct a band in the holiness meeting. It wasn't a regular pattern, but in the holiness meeting sometimes. But if they had got something that conflicted with the rehearsal on the Wednesday, he always cancelled the practice. Right. I never got the opportunity to rehearse the staff band, not once. I would have loved to have done a rehearsal, but he always cancelled it. Thank you. Yeah. It's, good. it's good to hear. What the emotions behind, you know, I guess you could read stuff in history, but to hear that personal side of things, is, yeah. uh, thank yeah. you for sharing. You mentioned Bernard Adams quite a few times being at Upper Norwood when you were bandmaster at Upper Norwood. Was he ever in your band as staff bandmaster when you were No, not for me. He was in the band. He played solo horn under, under, under the bandmaster Norman Tolliday. And Norman Tolliday was the third man down in the staff band. The staff band only had four chorus then all the time. Mm. Roman Cobb, Campbell Robinson, who is now in Los Angeles, is still one of the last five survivors from the band. Uh, Norman Tolliday, Ray Bowes. That was a good chorus section, really was. It was that good when we gave our programme in Chicago. Uh, one of the items played was uh, Just As I Am, and one of the chorus players clipped a note. And after the festival, Bernard got into him. He knew who he was. Yeah, he did. I'm not going to give you names there. No, no, I won't ask you. No, but he, he kept the note. He was a perfectionist. Strange, but he once told me and, and, uh, about conducting, because it was, it was tremendous in front of musicians. And he said he had. The, ner the way nerves attached, it, it attached his stomach. It's a it's, it's tightening and squeezing of his stomach. I said, what, every time? Every time he says, I feel, I always feel, I always feel nervous in that. It didn't give that impression, did he? He, he, he looked, he couldn't care less when he sat there. But, but he did, he felt it, he felt it very much so. Oh, thank you again for sharing those stories. It's really fascinating mm. to hear. We've done a lot of reminiscing back and, and hearing your stories, which is absolutely fantastic. Thinking about the future for young people that might be listening to this podcast, yeah. have you got any advice to them as Salvationist musicians? Yes. I, 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 my advice is that if they're going to be part of a, the band, then be part of the band. If it's rehearsal, then be there. Be on time. Make that a priority. And, and, and Sundays, be there for Sundays. He's not asking a lot in service to the Lord. Same with, same with songsters. If you're going to be a songster, be a songster. But I'm not going to get on to uniform. But, but That's a whole other podcast. I'll <laughs> keep away from that one. But, yeah, be, being dependent, being so that the lead in the middle can depend on you being there and giving it 100% knowing that... It, if it's possible, he will be there or she will be there. Thank you very much Definitely. for that advice. So now I've got a few quirky quick-fire questions for you. Yeah. Um, that, uh, some of them are fairly standard questions. Yeah. Some of them might be a little bit wackier. Yeah. Uh, so first one, have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer? Eddie Ball. Eddie Ball. Now to narrow it down even further, have you got a favourite Salvation Army piece of music? 
I've got a few. I've got a few. Should we have a top three? Uh, Lord of the Sea, Triumph of Peace, I like that. Fire in the Blood, I like that. Excellent stuff. Thank you very much. Good top three there. Next question. If you could have dinner with anybody in the world, living or from history, uh, who would it be and what would you be eating for dinner? Oh, if I'd been eating it, it'd be like a lamb with no. roast potatoes and peas and mint sauce. <laughs> Sounds good. Who would I be eating it with? Mm. If you could, anyone from history or currently from around the world. Oh, I, I think it would be Bram Tovey. Yeah, I think I'd like to talk to Bram Tovey. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. If you could banish one instrument from the face of the earth forever, what would it be? Soprano. Fair enough. The voice or the cornet? Um, the voice or the cornet? The cornet. The cornet. Okay. I'll pass that on to any soprano players on it. <laughs> uh, if you could rename your local train station after a piece of Salvation Army band music, what would you call it? Uh, in the firing line. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Good know. choice. <laughs> okay. Two choose. Another sort of hypothetical question. If you could click your fingers and magically teleport yourself to anywhere in the world right now for five and a half minutes, where would you go? Pizone Park in Scarborough. Because there, right in the middle of the park, there is a lake. And in the lake, there is a bandstand to play on that park. And I've played on that bandstand field down. Bees on Park, Scarborough. Thank you for that. Have you got a favourite tune? A favourite tune? I like Ockhills. Excellent. Thank you very much. How about a favourite passage from scripture? No, well, I don't know which book it is. I was reading it only last night. I have my devotions there. And it's a crowd talking about, about uh, Jesus when it says, and they called him wonderful. And they called him wonderful. And that was in my Newton translation. And they called him wonderful. Oh, that's lovely. But it keeps coming back to me. Keeps coming back. Thank and you. they called him wonderful. Thank you ever so much, George, for your time and for your words today. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you and hear some of those stories. Oh, so, yeah. and thank you for welcoming, welcoming us into thank your house. You. Thank you for coming. No I hope I don't get into trouble with some of the things I've said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you won't. We can edit those bits out. <laughs> Thank you, George, for that insight into your life, your faith and your music making. The eagle-eared amongst you may have noticed that we didn't ask George for his band manager selections. Simply, that's because we recorded with him in the middle of last year before we'd even come up with a concept. Uh, for those that don't know what the concept of band manager is, uh, we ask each guest to choose two players to nominate for our fully scored fantasy band. Guests can choose a player for any seat in the band, as long as it's not already filled. Players are chosen for their outstanding playing, influence and encouragement, or sometimes even just purely sentimental reasons. So don't worry, we have contacted George to find out who his picks would be. His first choice was his good friend, Leslie Condon reiterating his selection in the fantasy band. His second choice 
was Roland Cobb, who will take the number four seat on the Solo Cornet bench because that was the only one that we had available. And with that, our Solo Cornet section is now complete. Now for something completely different. Here's Sam Creamer talking about William Himes' flugel solo, So Glad. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us on Fully Scored. A real pleasure to be speaking to you from uh, the other side of the world via the magic of Zoom. Are you keeping well? Mate, I am keeping very well. Um, very hot over here at the moment. Um, I believe, how, how hot was it for you today, Matthew? Oh, well, I'm absolutely sweating with about four degrees Celsius here. So it's Four degrees oh, Celsius. Well, I, oh, yeah. I can do you about... I can do you about 30 degrees better over here um, nice. in the positive, not the negatives. Um, <laughs> definitely t-shirt and short weather. Oh, yeah, just making us very jealous there. So let's let's move on swiftly, shall we? <laughs> So we're going to be speaking about uh, Bill Himes' iconic, I would say, now flugel solo, So Glad. So just a few contextual questions before we delve into the score. For you, when did you first come across this piece and discover it? I probably came across it um, when I was actually depping for another core band concert. I would say that's probably only been in the last five or six years. You know, I, I'm probably a little bit behind the times on this one, um, considering it was written in 1983. Um, but definitely, I had heard of it a lot. I've heard that, oh yeah, it's a ripper swing piece. It's a flugelhorn solo. Um, it's a Bill Hines chart. Um, it ticks all the boxes. I just hadn't had a chance to play it yet. Um, I first probably downloaded a recording of it. Um, the first recording I probably downloaded was the Melbourne Staff Band recording with uh, James Morrison playing the lead. I've got a couple on my playlist at the moment. And um, yes, definitely after, after I've come across this piece of music and played it a few times, um, it sort of sticks with you. And for a chart that was written in 1983, that's pretty good, really. Absolutely. So, I can't quite believe it, but 40 years ago this year, it was published. Uh, I believe when it first got taken to Music Council, it was actually rejected uh, because it was too out there, too modern for Salvation Army music. How do you feel about that, knowing how Salvation Army music is today? The interesting thing to note about the Salvation Army publishing um, at this, this particular time, 1980s, Swing and big band music has been around since the 1920s, 1930s. And it even, even says in the notes is it's written similar to a big band style of the 1930s. Um, so my honest opinion here is the Salvation Army is a little bit behind the times. If the actual style of the piece had been around for 50 years before it was published, um, and it's taken that long for maybe not even just Salvation Army bands, but brass bands in general to actually breach the uh, contemporary swing jazz style idiom. And this piece of music, uh, anyone that knows your music will know that you have a real talent for writing in a big band and jazz style. I know, of course, not exclusively. Has this work in any way had an impact on the way that you write at all? I, I would probably say yes. Obviously, as we've just alluded to, this was 
quite possibly and probably the first swing piece of music to be published by the Salvation Army. This paved the way for future generations of writers. It paved the way for future generations of musicians in Salvation Army bands. And not just that, it also paved the way for listeners. What, what will be received by this genre of brass band? Uh, what will be perceived, um, particularly with this style of music, how is it received outdoors in the public? How is it received beyond the four walls of the church? This is, this is for me, um, and with a lot of what I do, with the way I write, I like to write in a way that captures anybody's attention. Um, not just using a Salvation Army tune that everybody within the four walls seems to know very well and love, but for those outside the walls, when we go down the street with the army band or in, into the contest realm, um, how do we grab the attention of everybody else that's not army or doesn't have a faith? How do we get their attention? It's a real outreach and an evangelism tool. Um, for me, that's, that's what sticks and that's what this piece uh, really paved the way for. Some really interesting points there. Thank you for that. So I'm sure you'll be so glad to know. We're going to delve into the score now and uh, have a look through at uh, what Bill does with the dots here. So let's start at the beginning because that seems to make fairly logical sense. What can you tell us about this introduction here? Well, I think the first thing we need to look at here, Matthew, like, like I sort of alluded to, before we play a note, the conductor probably needs to look at the score notes. In approaching this piece of music as a conductor in 1983, which I wasn't, but for conductors out there that were a little bit apprehensive about this, and Leslie Condon wrote the score notes. Um, and they weren't even really performance notes as such. They were just, how do we get this into the genre? You know, it, it, some of his points said it may well not be that all Salvationist ears are yet ready to receive music in this style. Um, you know, it also goes on to say the serious music lover regarded such expressions with suspicion and even open hostility, but we are now surely at a place in music evolution where we must recognise the spurs which this art form has won, quite apart from the matters of personal taste. Um, it even goes on to say that um, perhaps it is superfluous to offer technical script in these comments. One must have a natural flair for this music before embarking on the role of the soloist. If a candidate be an absolute straight player, he should probably leave it alone. I don't, I don't know about you, but they, they sound like some pretty blunt comments, um, and that's before a note's even played. He's got a repetitive rhythmic figure. Now, what this is setting up is not just the style, you know, the thing we need to understand about swing is one and three don't exist. All of the accents always catch before beat one and beat three. So he set this up really well here within the first, what is it, eight bars of the introduction. 
he's also got it very heavily articulated. Lots of dots, lots of dashes, lots of accents, lots of witches' hats, as we call them in jazz. If you were to get a scat singer using such syllables as do be do wa be do wa be do wa, if you were to sing that, you'd get the articulation straight up because you're articulating with the, the syllables that you're actually using. But for brass players, particularly in the age of 1983, he had to spell these articulations out. So this is exactly what he's done here. He's not only introduced the style, he's introduced the articulations, the dynamics that go with that. It's a piano crescendo at the start, bar one, gradually getting to a double forte by bar seven. Um, and that's, that's pretty textbook, but when you're adding that to the swing genre and the drive behind swing, um, that's exciting what he's done here. So at letter A, the soloist takes center stage and uh, gives us our first uh, rendition of the tune. I am so glad. What are some of the things that we should be looking or listening out for in section A? Obviously, with a lot of words that we use in the Salvation Army, we associate them with selections like this. So why has he used the tune so glad? I am so glad that our Father in Heaven tells of his love in the book he has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest that Jesus loves me. I learned that song probably through Sunday school days, singing company, um, very, very early youth is when this song is probably mostly introduced. Traditionally, it's in a 6-8 measure, the tune. But again, he's adapted that into this swing idiom. But the, the thing is with big band writing, um, particularly when the, you're backing a soloist, everything here is pretty well stock standard and written in sections. So whenever one trombone's in, you're all in sort of thing. And that's what happens in a big band. Um, you, you don't often get a combination of like one saxophone, one trumpet, one trombone playing together in a block. It's usually section at a time. And that's what was big in the 1930s and 40s with uh, Count Basie's big band. So what you can see here in the trombones is they're all pretty much playing rhythmically in unison. Um, he's got one tuba playing and the way he's notated that, instead of having like straight crotchets, he's separated um, the walking line in bar three of A into quavers. So he wants daylight in between, as if it was a string bass. Because you've got to remember for this time, 1983, no one's actually read this yet. In, in the year 2023, we could put dots underneath it and most tuba lines actually know how to play swing by now. But this is the first time that army bands have actually played swing. Um, the other thing about um, letter A, where the soloist comes in, I, I would probably ask myself, well, probably even ask Bill, why the flugelhorn as the soloist? What do you think, Matt? It's that warm, mellow, rich sound, very vocal, and, and probably an instrument that you would find doubling if you were playing in a big band. The only instruments that are used simultaneously in a brass band and a big band, obviously you have your trombone section, obviously you have your drum kit, 
Which is another good point because up until this time, a drum kit probably hasn't been published to be used with an army band yet. So this is probably the first time. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. But the flugelhorn is the only other jazz instrument you would find being used in a big band and a brass band. And at that time, you'd had all these UB trumpet players go through, like Miles Davis, you know, Dizzy Gillespie, Louis Armstrong back in the day, all these brilliant jazz trumpet players coming around, but they always alternated between trumpet and flugelhorn. So flugelhorn was pretty solidified as a jazz instrument by 1983. C when the flugel takes over with this improvisatory line we've got the chords and the jazz chord progression written above the line here I guess that would be a first for Salvation Army music I would say so too um, the general general improvising rule in big band music if there's chords written above the the soloist line it basically the unwritten rule is you have freedom to ad lib or if you've got sound chord knowledge of how the chords are built um, you could make your own solo so I guess you could nearly say it's taking a leaf out of the drum kit notation here too as well because until this point in time it's it's probably assumed that the drum kit hasn't been introduced to brass band music yet so therefore all he's really done here for the drum kit part is nearly the same thing in every bar Right, but the assumption is that the kit player is just going to play whatever he thinks fits. And to this day, um, as a drummer myself, that's what we do. And this is not just an army thing, this is outside in the commercial world as well. Basically, drum kit parts are just like, we're, we're telling you the guide map, we're telling you what style we sort of want, the rest is the world's your oyster you make it work for us, sort of thing. And so that's, going back to the soloist part, this is what jazz improvisation is all about. Um, he had to write a soloist, um, a solo in there, because it was the first time um, a jazz solo had been written in our journals, really. So he's got to put something down for someone to play. Quite often in the jazz world, with professional bands even, you wouldn't even see a solo there. You'd see a chord progression with four slashes in every bar. And that just says, right, your turn to solo, make it up. takes us probably into the midsection of section C and we've got this interplay here between the band uh, with this syncopated rhythm and the answering flugelhorn 
uh, on its own. Can you talk us through that section? It sort of comes across um, as a bit of this like jazz call and response sort of pattern. This is perfect opportunity here if the flugelhorn player didn't get to play whatever he wanted um, because maybe he didn't feel comfortable um, improvising earlier. He's got a blank bar of absolutely nothing every two bars here. So this is perfect opportunity when absolutely nothing else is going on to actually showcase a little bit more of what he can do. to letter D. So we have some stabs and swells from the band and then a bit of development in the melody from the flugelhorn using the uh, first few notes canonically. Anything else that you'd like to pull out of the score here between letters D and E? Yeah, looking at the first four bars of D, he's got his double four-day shot note from the whole band and suddenly not even a breath mark in between at the speed that we're going, he's expected the whole band to get down the piano and by the next accented, like, uh, four and, we're back up to double forte. Um, I don't I don't put it past early, earlier writers that this hasn't done before, but in the swing idiom, you know, it's just like, how much more can we pack into this? It's like, <laughs> oh. That took us by surprise. You know, could you could you imagine being that music camp band or whichever band was first to read this going, oh my gosh, what just happened? <laughs> he's, he's just packed all of this in and yet there's so much more coming. Um, he's really tried to put so much in there yet keeping it so simple. I, I would nearly say that those two bars of letter D for the band particularly, and it happens again later on, but to this point, that's probably the two hardest bars in the whole piece. Coming out of those two bars, because he's got this sort of repetitive... He's repeating it up the octave three times before the soloist comes back in. Now, that, that's interesting, because that's taking a bit of a leaf out of the classical book that all brass bandies up until this point would be used to playing. That's familiar to them already. You know, it's that familiarity with um, techniques that have already sort of been used in brass band pieces prior to 1983. The difference is we're playing in a swing style. I think moving on through letter D, you've got all these shot notes and four-day pianos from the rest of the band, um, while the kit and the B-flat bass sort of hold, hold the ground with the style. The rest of the band's either playing shot notes or four-day piano chords. But it's very clever how he's done it. Um, to get the definite uh, four-day piano sound, the horns and the soprano the euphonium and, and the E-flat bass for that matter, they're all playing the same dynamic here. But those that are playing the long notes with the four-day pianos, 
which are the brights, they don't have to work as much on that four day piano. This is just going in the genius that Bill Himes is. He's a definitely a work smarter, not harder sort of guy. And the chord progressions that he used here is basically just going down by semitone over over a series of what is it, eight bars, maybe maybe ten, to arrive at the new modulation of D flat. And yeah, talking about jazz chords, you'd you'd sit in this band rehearsal in nineteen eighty three. Think, am I playing the wrong note? Have I made a mistake? But realistically, you haven't. It's it's jazz chords, and with jazz, nearly anything goes. Nineteen eighty three, we're used to the triad chord of, you know, you know what what chord was it we started on? A G minor nine. Your G minor would be a G B flat and a D as your basic triad. But to make it a a ninth on top of that, you've added the seventh, which would be an F natural, and then the ninth would be an A natural. But the way that that's been created with these chords is you've got your basic triad of G, B flat, D, but basically then with the D, you've started a new chord of a D minor on top of the G minor is what they call chord layering. So essentially the band's playing two chords. Um, and definitely as um, contemporary music and the use of jazz chords have sort of extended over the last 40 years, it's something that a lot of us would be actually quite used to now. But like I said, you can imagine in 1983 when this first came out, how many of the band were thinking, oh, I've, I've, I've got a clash with the first trombone, uh, solo cornets are playing a B natural, but the lower first trombone is playing a C natural. You know, that's... Generally, you know, you sort of think, well, that can't be right. But in jazz, it fits in that idiom, um, something they weren't used to, but this is the way Bill's just introduced this style to brass music again. But yeah, he's basically stepped that down from G minor to get arrive at D flat major ninth, two bars before E. So it's an interesting modulation that he's used. And it's literally like he's climbing down a set of stairs with, with semitone drops every way. But the soloist sort of does his thing, but you actually don't realise what's happening until you arrive at the resolve of the D-flat major 9. And fruity in equal measure. So, at section E, we have a development of the original opening motif. Uh, what are some of the things that you could extrapolate from the score here? Interesting thing to note here is probably more dynamics. The rest of the band has basically diminished from what were we, uh, mezzo forte, two bars before E, right down to the double piano on the downbeat of E. But the cornets are coming in at forte. That's, that's a pretty dramatic change if your band's playing that properly. Because um, by the time you get maybe a beat out of bar E on beat four of the bar before, your band's probably playing at about piano, right? And suddenly the cornets come in blazing. 
Um, Bill's been a lot more adventurous with some of these jazz chords in the accompaniment here than what he was earlier. Um, you know, if you, if you want to get technical, he's, he's actually broken the classical rule of parallel fourth intervals. And it's right up the band. Harmonically, it's not theoretically correct, but it's jazz. We're allowed to do this in jazz as anything goes, right? Um, so he, he's got this sort of, um, he's died it down a little bit. The accompaniment's quite quiet. Um, the only thing that really alludes to we've still got somewhere to go from here is when the trombones come in with their... It's a four-day hit and the rest of the band's not there. Um, I don't think the flugel part's even at four-day there. Maybe, maybe not. The interesting thing here, though, is the trombones have got a glissando fall written on their note. You'd have players looking at, at that in 1983 going, what is this all about? How do we execute this? Is it a glissando? Well, not really. It's a fall, which means you fall off the note. It doesn't mean you let your slide go all the way down like a traditional Dixieland type glissando. Hit the note and just fall off it. Um, and that's the jazz technique. So how much more jazz stuff can you pack into this? Because, again, the army's got a little bit to catch up on here. And he's taken all these jazz techniques and put it in this one chart and hit an army band with it suddenly. And everybody's like, whoa, where did this come from? And if that wasn't enough, segueing into letter F, suddenly we've hit a cabaret style. And to quote Kevin Larson from a few episodes ago, we have some razzmatazz here, don't we? Letter F. But this is another element of jazz that he's tried to pack in to this one piece of music. Um, and all of these elements of jazz have not been done before by Salvation Army bands. So you can wonder, wonder why this um, band at the first music camp was like rejecting the work. There was just so much in it that they just weren't used to. I, I say to a lot of bands, whether I'm playing or leading or whether they're brass bands or big bands or whatever, you know, if So Glad was to end up on your music stand next Wednesday's rehearsal, if you wanted to go and listen to a recording to get the style, um, while <clears throat> many of the staff bands have done really good recordings of it, if you wanted to capture the authentic jazz big band style that Bill's looking for here, You'd be putting on a, on a Count Basie album and listening to that on repeat. Sure, So Glad won't be in the track listing, but everything that is in So Glad, you will pick up from Count Basie and his big band. So, to wrap things up, uh, the tempo cranks itself up again and we get to our tempo primo at G to finish off the piece with this quite delicate ending. Interesting thing about the outro... 
um, which is what we would call it in the jazz world, an intro and an outro. It's a play out. Um, again, with a little bit of tweaking in the scoring, it's basically a cut, copy, paste of the introduction. It's just down a minor third because he's modulated. The main difference here is that the last two bars, but he's stopped on the double four day shot for the whole band and let the flugel take the da do va do what. And that actual figure is what the Cornets did earlier, but we don't, just don't sort of relate to that because A, it's in a different key and B, the soloist is playing it. So we sort of think that it's another solo fill. But realistically, it's exactly what the Cornets did earlier. So yeah, it, it's an interesting outro. It, it's, it's a cut, copy, paste of what we did in the introduction. But that last bar is is the very interesting way to end it because it's gone from big to suddenly subtle cheeky exit cheeky and sneaky indeed well sam thank you so much for that really insightful analysis of so glad but also the wider sort of um use of jazz and and those sort of idioms in salvation army music it's been really fascinating to listen to you and thank you so much for giving your time to join us on fully scored thanks for having me Thanks, Sam. A really fascinating dig into the music and context surrounding that iconic solo. Now, if you were abandoned on a desert island in the middle of nowhere, with only seagulls for company and perhaps sustenance, what album would you take with you and why? That's the question that I asked our next guest. To Arid Island. Today's guest is Neil Blessed. Well, Neil, thank you for joining us on Arid Island album. How is the island life treating you? Oh, so far so good. Excellent. You know, uh, yeah, very good. Thank you. Not clubbing too many seagulls. No, not too many. Not, no. not yet. No, you know, just get me eye in and yeah, then just, see. Your fair share. Absolutely. <laughs> Quite right. Well, thank you in all seriousness. That's a pleasure. Us. Many people will know that you have been a principal horn of the Household Troops Band for quite a few years now. Do you know how many years you've been in the band? I have been in the Troops Band for 23 years. Blimey. Um, and I've sat solo horn for probably about 21 of them. So Fantastic. Um, yeah, I know I don't look old enough, but... Uh, yeah, I was yes, going to say, uh, you don't even look 23. I know, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I started very young. <laughs> Started fresh out of the womb. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. And you must have loads and loads of highlights, but if I could press you for a couple from your time in that band, uh, what would they be? Oh, there's too many, really, to, to, to mention. I've had a, a brilliant, brilliant time with the band and had some real experiences. Um, many overseas tours that, that spring to mind. Um, been lucky enough to do the Rose Bowl Parade a couple of times, which is always memorable. Um, one of the highlights of being part of the troops and, and any Salvation Army band for me um, 
is actually when you go somewhere and join with a core for their Sunday morning worship. I, I really enjoy that, that the fact that you you're just joining them and, and you're worshiping together. Whether that's in this country. Or, or, or across the pond or, or, or wherever we're all joining together with a common cause and, and, and for that for me some of the, the most sort of intimate and, and personal moments I've had with God have, have come as a result of those meetings absolutely thank you for those words and sharing that and I'm sure that's something that many of our listeners will have uh, hopefully experienced or will experience in the future absolutely absolutely and uh, talking about the future or the very very uh, near history anyway you've just been appointed principal horn of the international staff band so first of all congratulations thank you. Thank you. and uh, you've done quite a bit with the band already haven't you um yeah it's been a bit of a baptism of fire yeah um i mean i'll start by saying i'm absolutely honored to to have been offered the seat uh, it's a massive privilege for me something as as a young aspiring tenor horn player that you you always wanted to to kind of aim for and, and to achieve that for me personally is a real you know, I'm, I'm I'm proud of that if if I'm allowed to be proud. Um, but yeah, I've been a bit of a baptism of fire. Um, I was thrown kind of in at the deep end in stranger recording, and then we were of course down at Bournemouth at TYB, then a weekend at Derby, um, and then I got to do some rehearsals. So it was a bit of a baptism <laughs> of fire, um, and and of course we've just got back from a, a very very busy but fulfilling weekend with the uh, with the New York staff band as well. So. Uh, Yes, very busy already. Absolutely, and a cracking weekend for those oh, guys. brilliant weekend. It's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Now, I like to ask most of our guests uh, what they do for their day job, but I've heard rumours that you are a uh, bobsleigh, uh, Olympic bobsleigh. Is that correct? Um, I've had to retire. Have you? Oh, that's yeah. a disappointment. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, a na- nasty accident. I took a wrong turn. <laughs> You know, went went left and I should have gone right, and uh, the the brake man fell out. So you know, I, ha- I had to retire from that. So uh, so uh, unfortunately, the day job's much much more mundane and boring than that. Um, in that, I work in the insurance industry and deal with all sorts of nasty personal injury claims and and, and all that kind of stuff. I haven't seen one yet for anybody falling out of bobsleigh, but you know, I'm sure that's probably around the corner. Um, but yeah, it's it's quite a mundane. Um, a, a dull job, but someone's got to do it, and um, you know it. Uh, it pays the bills and uh, and keeps the roof over the head. So, uh, so yes, that's that's my day job, really, in a nutshell. Absolutely great. Thank you for that. So that brings us on to the all important question: If you were stuck on an arid and deserted island, and you could take one album with you, what album would it be, and why? It's a difficult choice, this one. So I'm sure, like many of you guests who've done this, so many CDs that to to choose from, um, and and when you asked me to pick one, I was you know sitting there thinking, oh, should it be that one? Should it be that one? Uh, but in the end, the one I've chosen um, is the Wilfred Heaton collection, which was the the CDs that were done jointly between Black Dyke and the International Staff Band, um, and simply because I look I looked at the track list. Um, particularly on sort of the army side of things and every track is just an absolute cracker an absolute classic track uh, and even on sort of the, the, the non-army side of things as well you know you've got contest music um, which for me personally I've done battle with a couple of times on the, on the contest stage as well so um, it's, it's really really you know a great CD and, and every track you look at is just an absolute uh, winner in my book Absolutely, but if I had to press you for a favourite or a couple of favourite tracks, Ooh. could you choose? Now you're pushing me. Um, I think some of the tracks on there 
and glory glory probably doesn't get played very often mm. I think it's an absolute great march very very descriptive very cleverly written mm. um, but the two I'd probably say are um, My Treasure um, I think that's just beautiful beautiful music from a, from a personally selfish point of view maybe there's a beautiful tenor horn solo in the middle of it mm. um, which I absolutely love listening to and, and, and playing as well so that, that that's that's um, probably a little selfish but the, the horn solo aside I think it's just absolutely beautiful music to listen to um, and of course probably one of the most classic marches of all time in, in praise mm. um, just wherever you go and obviously it's, we've done it with the staff band already since I've been in the band and and people still love to hear it even after all these years of it being written people still love to hear that march because it is just a really really fine example of march writing by by a, a master composer I know it sounds cliche but every time we play it there's something new that I notice certainly I'm sure that's not just me no it's so much What's detail that? so much detail in there as, as well mm. cleverly written very cleverly written Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Neil. No, it's a pleasure. Choice, and thank you so much for giving up your time and joining us. No, thank you for having me. Enjoy the rest of your seagull clubbing. Thank you very much, I shall. Thanks, Neil. A great choice of album. And without giving away too many spoilers, that does link rather nicely to our next episode. It's now time for Band Mastermind, and a rather unusual edition at that. As you might be able to tell, this month's edition was a complete surprise for me. This was recorded as part of my stag do last weekend. Wild. Uh, to find out more, I'll hand over to our guest host, Callum White. Hello everybody, as you've noticed, I am not Matthew Frost, this is Matthew Frost, and welcome to Stag Mastermind. Oh, crumbs. <laughs> As you can probably tell, Matthew didn't know that this was happening, um, and now it's time for us to get our own back on you for all the ways you have uh, annihilated your guests over the years for Stag Mastermind. Oh, no. <laughs> you know how you uh, thought you didn't have a band mastermind for uh, the next episode? Yeah. Yeah, you do now. Oh, no. <laughs> and it's you. Oh, no. So, uh, producer extraordinaire Simon Gash has um, sent me a list of questions. Um, so it's going to be two, in this special edition of Band Mastermind. There's going to be two rounds of questions. You ready to play Stag Mastermind? Absolutely not. I also think this is worth saying. I think this is the first we've done with a live audience. Is that correct? Probably. Yes. Think, yeah. So to put you in the picture for the viewers and listeners at home, we are here in um, not so sunny Prestatin. It's pouring. It's pouring down with rain, and um, we're in the caravan of chaos. Uh, for the weekend, and uh, as part of night one of the Stag Do, we decided to do Stag Mastermind. Oh, so, Matthew Frost, you. are you ready to play Stag Mastermind? Uh, if you insist, yes. I do, here we go. So, 90 seconds on the clock, please, Oliver, and let's go. <laughs> Who is bandmaster of Ramsgate's Salvation Army Band? Pass. Whilst Captain A. Wright is cited as the first band leader of a band in Birmingham, the first bandmaster was Bandmaster Pollock. What was his profession? Uh, tin miner. Who is principal trombone of Bexley Heath Band? Oh, I should know. Um, 
Oh, I don't know. <laughs> this is Charles. Uh, Andrew Mercer. Uh, incorrect. What piece is number 333 in the festival series? I don't know. <laughs> That's not correct. <laughs> Which officer was bandmaster of Bromley Temple Band when the band travelled to, to Norway in 1999? George Whittingham. Incorrect. Oh. In what years was the, co- was the, the Call It Solo Triumph published in the festival series? I didn't even know it was a Call It Solo. <laughs> <laughs> That's incorrect. <laughs> and for a bonus point, who wrote it? Ray Bowes. Incorrect. Oh. So close. Was it? Even Ponsford had only two pieces published in the Unity series. What are they? Oh, crumbs. Uh, no idea. Oh, close, but not quite enough. <laughs> in 1912, an instrument scheme was started for replacing old instruments at Birmingham Citadel. This scheme reached its total in just eight weeks. How much did they raise? Uh, £2,000. Not even close. Oh. Who was the commissioned bandmaster? Oh, I've started, so I'll finish. Oh, Who you. was the commissioned bandmaster at Rains Park Corps in the early 2000s? Oh, yeah. oh not a Scooby. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, no worries. That's just the pressure of bandmaster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is. No, yeah, it, it, is. Really it is. Now you know how all your guests feel. Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah, so you took, scored a grand total of zero. Now you'll it's be... not a bad score for no, Bandmaster. No, that is pretty no, good score for Bandmaster. Yeah. Now, so let's go through the answers, shall we? Who is Bandmaster of Ramsgate Salvation Army Band? Uh, Hayden Beerling. That's oh, on the tip of my tongue. Captain A. Wright is cited as the first leader of a band in Birmingham. The first Bandmaster was Bandmaster Pollock. What was his profession? He was a foreman in a bicycle chain factory. Who is Principal Trombone of Bexley Heath Band? You should know this. I should know. Yeah. Um, it's Morris Horwood. Oh. Andrew Mercer plays euphonium. What piece is number 333 in the festival series? The Dawn of Victory. It is the Dawn of Victory because you can now see Yeah, I can now see your um, <laughs> Which is written by Harry Kirk. This is why you're the host and I'm not. Uh, which officer was bandmaster of Bromley Temple Band when the band travelled to Norway in 1999? Major Don Oliver. Uh, in what year was the Cornet Solo Triumph published in the festival series? 1959. Oh, sorry. And for a bonus point, who was it by? Alan Walker. Oh. Stephen Ponsford's two pieces in the Unity series are Walking With Him and Sue O'Gan. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, we played it in our band. Yeah, you played it many times. Um, In the the instrument scheme from Birmingham Citadel raised £120. Which for 1912 was probably quite. Uh, hard, what, what is that in modern uh, numbers? What? I don't know. I played the drums for a living. Because uh, I'll tell you, it's two thousand pounds. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. So one point. <laughs> well, no, not one point at all. And then the bandmaster at Rains Park in the early 2000s was Andrew Grinnell. Okay, so that is part one over and done with. Um, part two is going to be questions you have asked. Oh, your no. guests over the last however many episodes. Oh, so let's see if you know your own questions. <laughs> Are you ready to play Stag Mastermind Part 2? Oh, I'm revved up and raring to go. Okay. Start the clock. What was RSA's only core appointment? Uh, Sheerness on Sea. Correct. The recording of the Gospel Train, released in 1971 by the Canadian staff band, featured which vocal soloist? Uh, pass. 
which Salvation, Salvation Army band was the first ever to march in the Lord Mayor's Parade in London on the 9th of November 1920? Was the Salvation Army Assured Society band? I'll give you that. For how many years was George Fuller bandmaster of the ISB? Uh, 42. Incorrect, so very, very close. Who was the first bandmaster of the Rose Hill Band? Oh, major someone. Oh, I can't remember. Pass. It was a major, but not someone. How many times has the March Christmas Joy appeared in different Six. series? Ah, very, very close. Seven. Correct. Seven. Uh, not going to give you that. Oh. In what year did the Triumph series begin? Incorrect. The Salvation Army started making its own range of brass instruments in in 1889, but in what year did manufacturing cease? 1974. Oh, so close. Norman Aldroy was bandmaster at Montreal Citadel, for whom he wrote the iconic march, but for which other Canadian corps was he also bandmaster, for whom he also wrote the march? Uh, London Citadel. Uh, No. What was the name of Eric Ball's father? Jack. Correct. What is the journal number of Just As I Am by Wilfred Hinton? 2140. Oh, incorrect, I'm afraid. So let's go through some of the answers that you got wrong. But that was a good effort. Oh, thank you. The Gospel Train, uh, vocal soloist with the Canadian staff band was Douglas Court. Yes. George Fuller was bandmaster of the ISB for... 19 years, not oh, 42. Oh, so you weren't close to that, wasn't it? The first bandmaster of the Rose Hill Band was Major Walter J. Ward. So you, you got the rank correct, but Thank you. Major somebody is not the thing. Um, question number six, you eventually got right. Christmas Joy has been published seven times. Triumph series was started in 1921. The Army's uh, brass instruments finished manufacturing in 1972. Uh, the march written by Norman Audrey. I, I can't, Audre, 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 I think okay, I, I did might that. be butchering. No, no, no. I, I, you're probably doing it better than me. It was Earl's Court Citadel. Oh. Um, the journal number of Just As I Am. Anyone know that? Without Those who haven't guessed, haven't seen the screen. 1291 number one. And that was as far as we got. So I think you scored three. Which for band mastermind... Is a very respectable score. Not if you've asked all the questions before. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much for playing uh, your own quiz, Band Mastermind. And uh, we hope you viewers have enjoyed this very uh, special edition of Band Mastermind. I'm sure we all want to wish Matthew and his uh, wife to be Rebecca all the best for their married life together. Thank you. Um, and um, this is all you're going to be seeing from the Stag Do. Um, so uh, thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you again. Well, thank you, Callum, for organising that surprise, which has now absolutely obliterated any shred of credibility I might have once had. Uh, And thank you to Simon Gash, our producer, for the questions. Probably almost as hard as the normal questions we ask. Thank you to those who sent in guesses for the sparsely scored excerpt. So far, still nobody has guessed the piece correctly. We'll add another part into the mix now to see if that makes it any easier. If you can identify the piece, then send us a direct message on any of our social media platforms to let us know.
let's hear that again. I'm afraid that's just about all we've got time for in this episode. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter to keep up to date with the latest releases and any bonus content. Thank you also to those that have sent emails regarding the podcast over the previous few months. It's been great to hear your feedback and suggestions. Please do feel free to keep them coming. Now time for a few thanks. Thank you firstly to our brilliant guests, George, Sam and Neil, for your time and sharing of your stories and insights. Thank you to our producer, Simon Gash, for not only royally stitching me up with those band mastermind questions, but also producing and organising this and every other episode so far. Thank you to Wobplay for hosting this podcast and the associated playlists with it. And a special thanks to Callum White for your guest hosting skills. You might have the job. And last but not least, thank you to you, our listener. Hope you've enjoyed joining us on the virtual sofa of chat. See you next episode. Goodbye and God bless.